scripture reading today is Acts 1, 6 through 11. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Thank you, Randy. I want to just very quickly tell you that the trip to Argentina, Buenos Aires, was a great success. Um, I read with 12 different individuals anywhere from uh, one time in that two-week period all the way up. I had folks that came back four different times to continue the conversation. Uh, you're going to be hearing more about it. Um, just just one, of the, one of the greatest mission efforts as far as foreign mission efforts I in my lifetime have ever been a part of. Um, and, and, and I just want to say anybody can do it. Anybody can make an impact for the gospel investing two weeks in doing a Let's Start Talking mission. And we're going to be talking more about it that as things move forward. So I spent two weeks in, in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and then I had two days, not quite two days, but I had 36 hours with our missionary Lindsay Phillips in uh, Porto Alegre, um, Argent, uh, Brazil. And, uh, and that was the language shift that I was talking about, having been surrounded by Spanish for two weeks and then suddenly thrust into Portuguese. I just want to tell you, great things are going on there. Uh, I realize that many of them are just preparatory to when the, the actual Hope House will be given. And, and make no mistakes, the money is there. The will is there. Um, the city is holding up the process with some permitting issues. And you need to be praying specifically that the city and the engineers for Porto Alegre will, and the politicians, let's just be real honest, the politicians will release that permit so that they can finish the construction. I got to visit the, the rehab farm where the, the men that will be coming to populate this will be. And that was a remarkable experience. Good things are going on there. And... and just it, you, you visit that place and you kind of catch a vision of, of the way. And again, the last statement, if you can see it, Portuguese, I, I confirmed this translation. If I botch it, it's just because I messed it up. But restoring lives to change, to, to impact the world. Restoring lives to impact the world. And uh, if any of you have had anyone in your family who's had uh, drug or alcohol addictions and you have seen them be able to recover and know the struggle it is to really recover and to get back into a productive life, you know how valuable that can be. There are very few places in the world that that's a bigger issue than in Brazil. And uh, this is just one little seed that if we get the permitting permits going, um, every time Lindsay goes around the corner and meets with another group of people that want to know about what they're doing, they, all they say is, we can't wait 
to replicate what you're doing. You need to show us how, and we want to replicate it all over this country. I think those are good things, and I think you can feel very good about what you're doing to support Lindsay in that effort. And, and, uh, and again, I ask you to pray for what's going on there. I want to ask a couple of volunteers to come up, if you don't mind. And uh, Hutch, in a minute, I'm going to want you to zoom in a little bit. But uh, I want Josh and Natalie to come up. I think uh, they're both here. Yeah, come on up, guys. Hurry, hurry, hurry. So if you, if you have had experiences that tell you what the, this is, please don't blurt it out because that will ruin the illustration. Got it? Okay, I'll come to you over there. All right. Hutch, can you zero in on that? Is that can you get anywhere close to that? Okay, I know some of you know what this is. You've had some experiences in, in the world, but do you guys know what this is? Huh? It is a ball. Very good, but that's not good enough. What might you do to find out what it is? Hmm? You might open it, yes. Does it open? No, it doesn't open, does it? You want to... Do you get any closer to knowing what it is by doing that? But let me ask you this. Do you know that it's real in the process of moving it from my hand to your hand? It's not a trick, is it? It's a real thing, correct? And one of the ways that we discover that something is real is we don't just look at it two-dimensionally on a screen. And we've done that before, right? But eventually, for something to be real... We don't just read about it. We don't just look at it. We want to not just see it. We want to touch it. Why are you being so reticent to do that? That's very good. There we go. All right. Can we give Josh and Natalie a big round of applause? For those of you who've been in the British Commonwealth anywhere, what is this? This is called a cricket ball, and the game of cricket is probably the Commonwealth's uh, version of... It's a version of baseball. In reality, let's be sure and do it the other way. Baseball seems to be an adaptation of the older sport called cricket. Um, I, I got to play this when I was in Australia. I do need you to know that I got this ball in 1975. It is dated uh, quite a bit. And, and I discovered in getting ready for the sermon, they've done something terrible. The traditional cricket ball is red with white laces. In visibility, they have now made a white ball with red laces. Can you believe that they would do such a terrible thing? Um, anybody want to be sure it's real? I know those people can catch. Very good. Jesus loved to tell stories, but in reality, when he headed on the road to Emmaus, when he encountered those men that Peter did such a great job of kind of bringing us into focus on, it's not a story, it's not a myth, it's not a fairy tale. It was a real journey to a real place with real people. And when they encountered him, they discovered, and in reality, I think, in reality, and they discovered that the, the veracity of how real he was when they sat down to eat, and my guess is that was the moment where they touched hands that we served food and handed food to each other. I want to continue the, the testimony that Luke gives uh, following that road to Emmaus. So if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, you could read along there or turn your phones that direction, but let's look at this passage. 
the two from Emmaus got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. Not a short journey, pretty good ways to go. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true! The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened. And this is an important phrase, and Luke wants you to hear this. They were startled and frightened because they thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is my, I myself. So again, this language of he himself appeared and I myself isn't just about the idea that Jesus was alive, but it is the doubt that he was a real physical being that he wants to be sure and affirm to them. Doubts arise in your minds. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still really did not believe, didn't fully trust in what their senses were telling them, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it, and again, in their presence, he ate it. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Skipping down a little bit. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Why don't you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we want to thank you for this day to be gathered together. Father, in, in it's sort of a unique way today, I'm glad that this, is, this isn't some sort of forum on Facebook or some sort of Skyped-in conference, but that we're here. And although there are people that are watching us across the Internet, uh, the full experience is about being here, physically touching the bread and the cup, making it part of us. Father, we want to pray that you would open our eyes to the many ways in which the reality of the resurrection of Jesus changes not only the hope we have for eternity, but it changes the hope we have for today. And that what we do today impacts the way we look at hope and our faith in the ministry of Jesus, in the here and now. Father, forbid that we would be Christians who are simply sitting around waiting for eternity to come. Because you've called us to be kingdom, here, today, and now. And using Luke's words, in flesh and bone. I pray that your spirit would come and would speak and in speaking, we would be changed. 
It's in the name of the one who lives today at your right-hand side. That we all pray and we all say, Amen. I want to take you back kind of the beginning of where we started this series, a series of, of scriptures, and I think this one kind of sums it up. God has given us new birth. Amen? New birth through the waters of baptism because of what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus did out of the tomb, coming out of the tomb. He has given us new birth into a living hope. Not a hope that's static, not a hope that's just waiting on something, not a hope that can't do anything until we finally get to death or maybe Jesus comes back before we die, but a living hope that's a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, relationship-to-relationship kind of hope that changes us. And if it changes us, Jesus' intention is that it will change the people around us. Amen? And so I just want to stack up a few things right quickly here. And, and I'm going to... Some of you will say, Alan never talks really fast. But I'm going to do my best to talk fairly fast at this point because I want to get through this. So we started with the reality that God created. And what God created was a physical, real world. And that when he looked at the physical, real world that he created... He didn't say, I'm sure glad I put some good spirit into that because otherwise it would be worthless. He looked at what he created, not just the universe, not just the planet Earth, but there's a special way in which Genesis 1 comes together and the way Genesis 2 is told that says, no, these beings that I'm called humankind, the male and female that come together to reflect the image of God in the, say it with me, flesh, are Now say the last word with me, good. Secondly, let's add another thing to that. Paul will use the phrase that it isn't just you and me that are waiting on this great salvation and this great hope, but it is all of creation. All of creation, even the inanimate things that we see in creation are waiting for God to renew them because sin and brokenness has affected the entire universe. And all creation is waiting, and the rest of the sentence says, for the children of God to be revealed. They're waiting for us to get on board with what God is doing. Their hope is that God will use us to bring a great restoration. And of course, we will never get fully to what God Want, will complete, but we are supposed to be pointing in that direction for all of creation. That means my neighbor next door... But it also means the stuff that I touch in this world. All creation eagerly waits. I don't ever look at the stones in my yard and think that they're eager about anything. Except to cost me a lot of money because there aren't any stones in this part of the world. But something's eagerly waiting. And then that great proclamation. A proclamation that Isaiah sees in advance. And then John then repeats as some of the last words that God speaks in the entire Bible. Behold, look, I am making all things new. Now, I don't know, but when I look at Romans and when I look at that statement, I don't think that it's just me that's being made new. But that all things in that good creation are going to be made new at some point in the future. Let's stack up one more point here. 
God will make all things new. Somebody say amen. And when Paul says that you and I, and, it, and it's not, not will be new creation, but says we are new creation. Can you say that with me? We are new creation. In fact, I want you to say it one more time, except I want it to be an I. I am new creation. That means that what God's going to finally bring together in that great and glorious day, when as Randy read from 1 Corinthians 15, when death is swallowed up, when death is swallowed up, something great, wonderful, and completely new will begin again. But that right now, you and I are agents and pointers towards what will be. You are new creation. I'm sorry, but that's a different kind of hope than sitting around and saying, oh, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back again. By the way, am I hopeful and excited about Jesus coming back again? But that's not all that true biblical living hope is about. It seems that um, the New Testament, even inside the New Testament, there seems to be a concern that we're, we're not getting the idea of, of exactly the nature of the resurrection. Not all of the resurrection accounts will include so many details about how physical Jesus was. Luke does. And I would say to you what we read from Luke chapter 24, and then note that the same author, Luke chapter 24, is the one who writes Acts chapter 1, which Randy Fry read for us so well, wants to point us towards so many tangible things that say, look how real he was. I want to compare those two verses right quick. One from Luke 24. A ghost does not have flesh and bone. Now, I have a feeling that if you and I were writing it today, we would say something like, a ghost doesn't have flesh and... Oh, come on, you, you know this phrase. Flesh and blood. We talk about blood all the time, flesh and blood. Luke, in his world, and wanted to be sure that Jesus said it this way. Flesh and bone. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone. A ghost doesn't have this stuff. Where's my cricket ball? You coming? Make no mistakes, that was more about throw than it was about catch. <laughs> he was real. And Luke seems to spend a lot of time in the final chapter of that first book, Luke, telling us how real the resurrected Jesus was. Acts wants to go another step. Luke records the ascension at the end of 24 and then... He brings it back again, emphasizing it, even with more particular words, to tell us. Not only was the resurrected Jesus flesh and bone, but the ascended Jesus was flesh and bone. I'm going to carry you on a very quick journey that may be disorienting. The ascended Jesus was flesh and bone, the ascended Jesus today, 2,000 years later, is still flesh and bone at the right hand of the Father. 
And what did, the, what did the two guys in white, what did the two guys in white say? That when he returns, it will be just as he left. So many things happen between the planning of what we sing and, and the, the, the realization of a sermon. But the opening song today, did you hear the phrase, I know not why the Savior came. And then there's several verses where we do, I know not how, I know not how, I know not how. Make no mistakes. After 56 years of living in this flesh and bone and watching it degenerate over all that time and feeling it every morning when I get up, and please, the rest of you who are two decades older than me, don't say, just wait, it's going to be worse. (laughs) I don't know how. The flesh and bones of Jesus are still there 2,000 years later, and I don't know how it gets from earth to what we'll call heaven, and I don't know how it's going to get back here. But it seems to me that Luke wants us to understand the point that when he comes back, it will be in, say it with me, flesh and bone. You may ask the question, why does Luke, and and by the way, if you want to know the other gospel writer who really works hard on making sure we know it's flesh and bone, it's John. And forgive me for this little technical thing. But when you date the writing of the Gospels, the earliest is an argument between Mark and Matthew. And if you think it's Mark, you're wrong. It's Matthew. Luke, significantly later, probably two decades later. And John, probably another two decades after that. And as you journey through those stories, what you see is making sure that when we read the resurrection story, we are reading the story of a physical being. Because there were theories in the first century. There was a philosopher, you've heard of him before, Plato. Plato generated a worldview that said that there are two things in in our existence. There is the spirit world and there is the flesh world. And what he said was, in reality, those two things cannot touch, they can't be together. They are separate. It's called dualism. And that was a reality that he felt like was true for people. And, and, and let's be sure and say, my thoughts and my imaginations, my spirit, seem to, to lift me higher than my flesh and bones. Right? And so he had some ideas that were right. But God, from the very beginning, from Genesis 1, said, the flesh and bone part is good as well as the spirit, the image of God part, is also good. But it's good and it's together. Plato said in his dualistic view of humanity that the spirit is good and always good. The flesh is bad. And we would agree with him. The flesh has its problems. Amen? But he wanted to separate those two things rather than the biblical view which is they are together. And if you didn't believe it, they come together in Jesus Christ. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. He will come back exactly that way. If it's not flesh and bone, what difference does it make? Within the first two centuries of Christianity, the major concern for not understanding the truth about who Jesus was, therefore the truth of the gospel, were, have been um, 
systematized. We, we probably understand them better in these categories than they did at that time. And it's not important that you know these categories, except if you want to look it up, you can. They were called Gnostics and Docetics. Gnostics and Docetics. Gnostics wanted to simply make the reality of Christ only about spirits, all about what you want to know. Hear how that plays into Plato's idea that it is the spirit only that's good, and if I can make my spirit good with God, then the rest of it doesn't matter. The Docetics went into great detail about trying to explain that that there was a baby inside Mary's womb, and when it was born, the spirit, the spirit of God kind of came on and Of course, they had arguments as well, whether it came on at birth or came on at the baptism. But they were real clear about this, that at some point when Jesus said, into my hands I commit my spirit on the cross, that the spirit left him because the spirit cannot die. And then when he he resuscitated in that spirit and that came back together, docetism. And the church fought hard. And what we can see, actually, in the writings of Luke and John is that already we're needing to tell the story in a more precise way so that we understand the flesh and bone. And it wasn't just a theoretical argument. Because that kind of teaching led to a different way of living. Two quick points, if I can. First of all, The idea of Emmanuel, God with us, is diminished in meaning and power if Jesus is not flesh and bone from the moment of conception through his death on the cross in the grave, in the tomb, and resurrected. It doesn't mean as much. It has lost its power because... The reason you and I are looking forward to a resurrection is that the same flesh and blood that Jesus was made up was raised by God, reanimated by God, and you and I look forward to a day when the resurrection will be a reality for us. Amen? But it's not just about end things. Jesus lived, worked, toiled, sweated, stubbed his toe, struggled with his flesh, and its weakness, and its brokenness, just like you and I do, except that it never led him to sin. And that sense of God like us, God with us, God chose to experience that, has great meaning for each of us when we struggle. And when you think, well, Jesus really never really had to deal with temptation, you're not reading your New Testament. Maybe more than you did. And if not after his baptism, then go to the garden before the cross. And you will see a Jesus who sweat blood, who sweat water and blood because of what he was struggling with in his flesh. Secondly, if you can separate flesh and spirit, and I think you've probably already picked up on this, You have permission to see morality and ethics in a different light. You see, if I can just make my spirit clean, if I can just know the right facts and think the right things, then I don't need to worry about how I live. And there was a time in the church that I grew up in that I think maybe we emphasize knowing the right things and doing the right right worship practices so much 
that we may be left out a little bit of how you live in the world today. And when you can say that all you got to do is have your spirit right, but it doesn't matter how you live today, then you can degrade almost everything that God said, here is who you need to be as my people. How does Jesus say it? Greatest command is to love the Lord your God, and you can't accomplish that without flesh and bone loving each other. That's a critical element. Presence matters. Have you ever thought being there wasn't that big a deal? I'll just FaceTime in. I'll just send a text. I'll just... You know what's interesting is, is we write texts and emails. I have the physical letters that my great-grandfather wrote to my great-grandmother as he was wooing her. Mama and Papa Tackett. And if they just sent texts back and forth, I'd never have that. And I realized that notes themselves are not flesh and blood, but do you see how it goes in degrees? An ethereal message into a physical message already has more meaning, doesn't it? Don't we wish for those? Don't we long for those? But even more, your physical presence, your physical ministry makes a difference. Do you need to know the right words to say to somebody? And I would say, maybe. But I will promise you, if you need the right words, the Spirit will give you what you need. But more than that, the ministry of your presence. And by the way, we always think of that in times of struggle and suffering. And and it's been this neat testimony that Jack uh, Skinner has reached out to all of us and said, "We, we want your presence with us, not just your kind notes. The kind notes are great, but your presence means something. But it's not just in struggles, you see. It's in celebrations, isn't it? How many grandparents here? When that grandbaby turns one, where are you? You are there, baby. Just let you know, there are Sundays that I miss because I'm going to be with my grandbabies to celebrate those kinds of things. I don't know how I'm not going to do it. But if they're baptized and I can be there, I'm going to be there. We have changed some of the traditions about ways we baptize people here. We invite you to come forward. We want you to be a part. I've always thought I want a baptistry that when we come, go into the water and come out of it, you feel the drops of water on you because presence and physical things matter. Some of you who were involved in the design of this building know that for a little while I was really trying to get us a baptistry right down here. And they just kept telling me, you can't do that, you can't do that. I said, we can if we want to. And then they said it costs too much money. And then I said, okay. (laughs) Flesh and blood makes a difference. Nearness over distance And touch matters so, so much. I I don't have time to tell you both stories. So I'm going to retell you the Helen Brown story. Make no mistakes, Helen Brown understood the ministry of presence. She, in her own life, would walk up and down the halls of, of Jackson Village to visit people, to shake hands with them, to check on them. 
But my ministry to her was not complete unless I was in her, unless I was in her, which meant tea in the afternoon, typically. But it really came to a head when she was in the hospital in the last days and last hours of her life. Some of you may remember, you may have been there. We were doing a Sunday night uh, event, and, and Donna Marie called and said, Alan, she really needs you to be here. And I can't remember who, it may have been you, Randy. He said, I'll, I'll finish for you because you need to go. And I showed up exactly the way she wanted me to. I showed up in my suit and my tie. And I don't know why. And I'm not that important. But she wanted me there personally before she left this world. We shared communion together. I want you to know we didn't talk about bread and cup. We held it in our hands and we took it into our bodies. And within an hour of taking communion, she had transitioned from the struggle of this life into the rest of the next. Waiting on the day. When Helen Brown would rise and not have a bit of trouble breathing. When Helen Brown would rise and would stand up. And I know enough about her early story to want to dance a little bit with that body. Don't ever say, oh my coming won't make any difference. Sometimes your coming makes all the difference in the world. In the same way that God chose to save us by coming. And my living hope is that he's coming again. And when I reach out to touch him, it's not going to be grasping at nothing. I'm going to take his hand, I'm going to pull him close, and I'm going to hug him, and he's going to hug me back. And maybe, just maybe, he even lifts me up because he's so overjoyed to see me. And you... That's the living hope that the Bible points us to. And the only way to it is through Jesus.